Hello and welcome to How to Win the Lottery, Episode 4, Memories of My Father Watching TV by Curtis White. I'm Joey Lewandowski. I'm Bobby Fisher. Ooh, that's the first time in three episodes that you've had your actual name. I it's was Gemini season, baby. Oh, it sure is. Tale of Two, Tale as Old as Time, Beauty and the Beast. That's a Gemini tagline, right? I don't know. Unclear. Here we are. So, okay, I want to, <laughs> I want to, I want to um, retract, not retract, update. Last episode, I was like, this is our weirdest book yet. And then there's this book. And this book, I don't want to start every episode by being like, this is our weirdest book, but this is our weirdest book. I think that might, like, this might hold our title of weirdest book for a while. Well, this is experimental literature, right? So it's not really the type of thing that makes its hands into into casual readers. Like, you're not going to find this book in Barnes & Noble. You're not going to find it. You can find it on Amazon or eBay or whatever. But it's always going to be like, oh, six copies left or something like that. It's not, it's not popular literature. It's not pop lit. Um, it's advanced advanced stuff. This is written by Curtis White, who wrote a book called Requiem that yeah. was on the list of books that you had me. So I, I did I did math. I think I mentioned in a previous episode that you had given me at the beginning of last year, the beginning of 2020, you gave me 31 books because I was like, give me 10,000 pages, however many books that is. If it's one book, if it's 100 books, whatever, you came up with a list of 31 books. I think right now I've read 21 of those, which is both higher and lower than I thought it would be. But... On that list was Requiem by Curtis White. Yeah, one of my all-time favorite books. Which is a great book. That book, like this book, is also really weird because there's a lot going on there, too. That makes more sense kind of cohesively as a narrative. This is a bunch of collected short stories, essentially. Yeah, sort of linked by uh, a theme more so than character or certainly not plot. So what is the theme, Bob? Um, I think this is going to be a fun game of, like, making the other person tell them what the book's about. <laughs> What's the theme? The th- I, I, a lot of it's in the title. Um, like, g- generically, the easiest way to sum up this novel, which, I mean, we can talk about whether or not it's a novel or whether or not it's a collection of short stories, um, or if it's even that. Um, and it, if that matters. And if it matters, which I, I don't think that it does. But the, the title, Mem- Memories of My Father Watching TV, the theme is essentially a son accessing... His father, who ignores him through the popular television programs that his father watched. Yep. Even though it's fiction, it feels very firmly rooted, I would say, in reality. Yeah, I mean, it seems like it's the author's actual family. Um, At least he's not changing their names, which is a a thing that a lot of people, I mean, Philip Roth does that in a number of his books, including... Ones that are absolutely fiction, like Plot Against America, those, the, that's his family, it's his brother, that's him. The main character is Philip Roth. So that's not, like, completely unheard of. Um, he changes his name. He's Chris in the book. Yeah, which also, in Requiem, you have, like, Chad and Chris, and you have... It's possible that Chris is just a diminutive of Curtis. Maybe. The character... The main, I guess the character who is, I don't know how to say it, like, in relation to his father was born in 1951, just like Curtis White, and it's just, it's, it's him. Like, it's, this is just... You know, we talked about with Pizza Girl, she's a, like, it's a period piece maybe because that's how old Jean Kyung Frazier was, or, like, that's what the year was when she was that age. And so it just kind of easier to even fictionalize, if you're fictionalizing things, to fictionalize a thing that's, like, your experience just, like, twisted a little bit. But the experience here is just sitting behind his father, who's watching TV, and seemingly falling asleep at the beginning of every show. Yeah. But putting his dad in all the shows he's watching. Right, and his sister is running back and forth in front of the television trying to get his uh, their father's attention, and he's sort of behind his father, willing his father to turn and look at him because he, he's... Tossing marshmallows into his mouth. They're both trying to connect to the dad who's unreachable because television has robbed his his attention. 
there's been a couple books we've done so far last week last episode in this one at least i don't think the first two had any but that had diagrams that had drawings and my favorite one so far is the drawing of the living room. absolutely pathetic this is the worst drawing that i've ever seen in my entire life i love it i love it so much though i could do a better drawing than that in 15 seconds oh yeah so what it is there's a tv tv's pretty good you can't knock the tv the tv's okay so he's got his one sister who's running a figure eight to get mm-hmm. dad's attention then there's the other sister who uses her voice like sonar never finding what she's looking for and that's just a head so it's just a figure eight and then there's a head with three lines like sonar and then the dad a question mark sideways on like an open rectangle which is representative of a chair yep and then there's an exclamation point as chris or curtis and then like a trail of marshmallows yeah i love it pathetic what I think is very funny is that in the beginning, because I reread the first couple pages after I finished the book, like I reread the prologue, and he's like, Dad turns around and doesn't even know that I've made every one of these marshmallows in my mouth. And then at the end, he turns around and there's marshmallows all over the floor. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, like, right right out of the, the gate, we have sort of a popular consciousness version of the American family, right? With the dad yeah. sitting, at, uh, sitting in, like a recliner in mm-hmm. the living room watching television coming home after a long days of, day of work and not wanting to be bothered by anybody just wants to relax in front of the tv and what's interesting even in the prologue which i don't think is recognizable until you think about it later is absent mom sure yeah through the tv shows which we'll talk about some of which i know a little bit better than others some of which i had never heard of before this book which one have you never heard of before sea hunt I don't know Sea Hunt. I've never heard of Sea Hunt either. I don't know Manic Maverick, I don't think. That's just Maverick. Oh, that's just Maverick. Uh, you've probably seen the Mel Gibson, Jodie Foster movie, which was a remake of the TV show. Okay. Have Gun Will Travel, I've heard of, but I don't oh, know anything Paladin. about. Yeah. Uh, I know, I've heard of Combat. I know Bonanza from the, specifically from the podcast, Bonanas for Bonanza, that Andy Daly's character. I don't think it's pronounced Bonanza. I think it's just No, a, it's not. Okay. But they call it Bonanas for Bonanza because it's a terrible title. Sure. Highway Patrol, I know... And TV scandal, I don't. That's I don't know if that's a is that's that, was a, that a real no, game no, show. No, that's just like a game. No, that's a that, that's like um you know there was a, a a series of quiz show scandals. So I think he I think he's just oh, like roping like actual gotcha. pop culture into. But like through all these, I don't think I've ever seen an episode of any of these shows. But I know about them because oh, I've yeah I've, I think I've seen most of them. But I've seen the Third Man. Like I know that I've seen that movie okay. which they get to yeah, at the yeah. end. But I think through those, through the way that, and we'll talk about how he actually injects them in, I think going back to the mom, it seems clear maybe to me that dad cheated on the mom, maybe, possibly. Okay. I don't know if it seems clear because I don't know, I don't know if anything's clear in this book. Yeah. But I get the impression that the dad cheated on the mom with younger women probably. Mm-hmm. The mom was also sick at some point. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if she's dead or gone or just not in the picture in the prologue, but like in the drawing, in that wonderful, lovely drawing, there's no character for her. She's just, it's, it's me and my two sisters and my dad who's asleep. Well, I think also because in the fifties and the sixties, like in, in the folks of the nuclear family, as much as the mom is the person that controls the the family and controls the children, the day-to-day life, especially with male children, I think a mother's role is significantly ignored in favor of idol worship of a father figure that might not even be there, right? Yeah. Because that that's the, you know, fathers are our representative of masculinity. And so for young men to to uh, look toward 
their father uh, for for guidance in that area, and then have uh, that guidance be passed along to who the father's looking to for guidance in masculinity, which is all of these series of television shows that are essentially fascist in nature, right? They're shows that, that w- where the messages are almost exclusively hyper-masculine and the method of uh, victory, the, the, the way that a protagonist comes to, to uh, reach their goal at the end of the, the program is through some measure of violence, right? So, so you have a child worshiping a sedentary figure, mm-hmm. and that sedentary figure is gaining his action vicariously through idealized hyper-masculinity that like sort of rotates around like uniformed authority and visions of of violence because you have what what are the shows again it's it's uh well it's highway patrol highway patrol right which where, is a cop show yep bonanza which is just everybody dies in the old west essentially right yeah uh sea hunt uh yeah which is uh again i don't it's scuba dive it's unclear yeah, what that yeah, is yeah. yeah have gun will travel which is a mercenary show it's a, it's again like a, a guy going around shooting people for money maverick yeah old west again and then the third man the movie yeah right so, so so these are all like shows that that uh with the exception again of sea hunt kind of um that rotate around some sort of uniformed violence sea hunt is also a terrible title for saying things quickly <laughs> sea hunt yeah terrible title so i don't think we've said yet what the structure so it's it's collections of short stories these have all been published elsewhere um there's also a very strange which i said to you that you had not seen in the opening like in the What's this page? What's the actual? What's the? What's this? Like the info page? There's. I'm sure there's a book. In the term Library for this. of Congress info. Sure. On that page, there's a passage that says, "In a book full of pirated passages," which okay, the author particularly wishes to acknowledge the quote samples taken from Paul Driver's A Third Man Cento in Sight and Sound, Winter 1989. So the Third Man one is very weird in that it reminded me of Kiss of the Spider Woman, which you had me read because it's, sure. it's it's a retelling of a movie that you're not watching. Yeah. But that is like this just feels more objective. Like this feels like a, a a paper. Well, it's it's the only it's the only one when he gets the third man is the chapter that closes the book. It is the only one that accurately retells yeah. the, the the movie. Because when you have yeah. like you have Highway Patrol, it's like there's a man stealing another man's penis yeah. in Highway Patrol, right? And there's like incest, and there's all all of these things that are like clearly not. From at the, at the a forefront, 1950s TV show, at, yes. at the forefront of a 1950s TV show, but all that stuff is plausibly uh, subtextual in mm-hmm. 1950s TV show because, like, people hadn't creators even hadn't been like hip to the game of Freudism because, like, once academic ideas about Freud and stuff mainstreamed, people started interpreting things like highway patrol in a freudian manner academic papers started getting written about that people started like noticing phallic symbols and things like that then creators of those shows then had to write self-consciously with the idea of these things right. involved so you get away from overt unintentional symbolism uh which which sort of is is one of the pitfalls of of postmodernism because we can no longer like access our unconscious because we're so self-aware of how other people are going to view and interpret our unconscious. So we get ultimately like a much less honest version of the world. And what amplifies that here is that Curtis White, the author, or Chris White or whatever, the, the character telling these stories is inserting his father into these TV shows. Right. Either as a character in one time a bridge or at the end of the third man, it's his dad putting himself in like, oh, I'm in this movie and like watching the whole thing. And like, yeah, those are my fingers. It's like, what? what? So 
it's not only breaking down analytically, critically, whatever, what this is or what it means or whatever, but it's also like putting his father in the forefront, I guess, either get to know the dad better or for us to get to know the dad better. It's a very strange mechanism, which is also kind of further muddied because it seems like the other TV characters and actors, like it seems like the TV characters know that they're in a TV show. Yeah. Like that's a book in in of its, in and of itself, and like that's just like glossed over. It just feels like another thing to like kind of pile on there, sort of. Yeah, I think in some ways it accurately predicts because I think this book is from 1998, mm-hmm. so it is a little bit ahead of the wave of television and movies that are hyper referential, like being John Malcolm, like the Charlie Kaufman things, kind of, or or like a, a Community. Okay. Right, which is like com- largely the plots and things and community are made up from the plots and things of other stuff. Yes. Because as a culture, we know a lot of times we no longer create, we reference. Right. Right. So like, you know, uh, if in high school, you'll be like, oh, this guy's so funny, but really this funny guy just quotes Anchorman. Right. And then everybody laughs because he has a Jim Carrey movie memorized or something like that. And it's like, that guy's not actually funny. He's just like acknowledging that something else is funny and passing that information along and then getting getting praised. So like you have Curtis White in this or, or the narrator, Chris White, I guess sort of anticipating that that mode of, of culture, saying that like that stuff has been around for forever because like television being the populist medium that it is, especially in the 50s, because it was like much more ubiquitous. There weren't like, you know, TikTok and all those. Oh, like, like our, our cultural references have bifurcated a million times since then. But but back in the 50s, it was like you had Highway Patrol and Bonanza and you had right. like these things that were like cultural touchstones. Basically, everybody knew them. and, and Because there and were six them. TV shows or whatever. And like it's, you watch this or you watch the other thing. And like it's... Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, and so like that stuff had more like individualized uh, influence on, on people. Mm-hmm. So now you can get away with like basing your entire personality off of Don Draper or something like that. And like 50% of the people in the world will have no idea and just be like, that dude's cool. Yeah. And she's like, no, he's not cool. He's just like being John Hamm. Right. So there's too much stuff. That's the point of this episode. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't know that there's, that there's too much stuff. What, what I'm saying is that Curtis White um, like recognizes the, uh, the ways in which TV masks our uh, individuality by, by, by giving us ciphers or filters through which through which like society can interpret us well i think what's also interesting when you bring up mad men is that all of these tv shows are basically manly man dudes who this guy who seemingly has like even on the third man story like the third man one almost seems like a dream in a way because it's like this idealized version of his relationship with his father where like it seems like that's not actually the case. Right, his father's welcoming him in and right. saying, like, let's watch this together. Although that is that does begin with, this is the first time my father has ever spoken to me, which right. is an exaggeration the other way, but it's also whatever. It feels like these are shows that, you know, it's it's the upstanding, it's like the, it's the California police officer or whatever, or like the manly man on the Western front or whatever, and just like these, like, again, idealized versions of what masculinity looks like, right? And mm-hmm. then you look at Mad Men, and like, on the outside, Don Draper, or, you know, any of these shows, like The Sopranos or Breaking Bad or whatever, it's like, to the world, they're the guy who has it all together, and then on the inside, they are just crumbling. I think it's interesting, like, as we got more stuff, it became more introspective, but here, he's framing his father, as his father's probably framing himself through, like, 
Haas or whatever on Bonanza. Yeah, I, yeah, it's a it, like pop culture has evolved to a point where we we have created an archetype and now we have to deconstruct yeah. the archetype. But here at this point, we're still constructing. Ye- that's right. Yeah, and and Curtis White is doing the deconstructing, mm-hmm. right? Because he is reinterpreting his childhood from the perspective of a. Uh, 1998. I'm gonna guess he was 40 something in 19. Well, 47. He's born in 51. Yeah. Okay. So, so uh, in, in, in 1998, you're reconstructing this from the point of view of a 47 year old hyper academic person who right. has who has read a fucking ton of Freud. I, I think Freud is probably the primary influence on this. But you have that section in the beginning where he, his father is at the game show and he's like, "Oh, gee, I don't know if I'm going to be able to answer any of these questions." And they ask him like really like complex detailed questions about like philosophy and he like fills in the, the right blank. answer. Yeah, he yeah. fills in the blank like incredibly easily. Yeah. Just because like to Curtis White, that's I think I don't really know. But it's also framed in the same thing, like, how would you describe yourself? Well, I don't know, like a turd in a hat. They're like, what? Yeah. (laughs) It's like, I didn't think that that's, like, I just, that's just what I, I didn't think it was going to be read on air. And then they have, like, this very, like, it's like connecting the dots, right? Like, it's a game where you, like, it's like auction style, like, how many dots do you want to take a stab at? Like, Jeopardy, kind of, right? Yeah. But you're using your money to, like, buy a thing. So, like, he's bidding on dots. He's like, a five-dot question, which is an easier one than an eight-dot question or whatever. And it's, just, like you said, this incredibly complex thing or whatever. Yeah. And then he gets the answer right. And, like, they put the dots up on the boards connecting this thing. And he doesn't know what it is. And he answers the second question. And then, like, that puts up. And so blurry. He's just like, what well, kind of looks like a hat? It's like, is it a turd in a hat? Like, yeah, you got it. And, like, he's like, but that doesn't seem fair to the other guy. Because, like, if he guessed, he would never... But the guy's like, I've been here long enough. It's just like, this is the weirdest... Like, this is almost like... I don't know what is... Like, this is like a Tim and Eric sketch, almost. Or like a... I I didn't think this until now, so this might be a... Well, you're welcome. A dumb thought. But when you... There's no dumb thoughts, just dumb (laughs) dumb people. (laughs) Dumb people have dumb thoughts. That's how it works. (laughs) The, The, like, him having the reference of the turd in the hat, and that Mm -hmm. being the key to him answering that question, is like a a reflection, I think, of of Curtis White and his relationship to these TV shows, right? He he comes to these interpretations of these TV shows because of his personal relationship to the information. Sure. As an eight-year-old or whatever he is, like, as he's telling stories, like, your dad is the smartest person in the world. He knows everything. He can do everything. Oh, tell me about it. Yeah, I I mean, I thought that my dad was incredibly smart for most of my life. And then there's a point where you reach where you're just like, oh, he's just a person. Not even, like, if it's, like, a bad thing. It's just like, oh, no, like, they're just guessing. Like, parents are just people who, like, had a kid either on purpose or by accident. Like, they're just trying to figure things out, too. When I was in college and all of – I had a bunch of friends who were, like – education majors Mm -hmm. and then they graduated and they started teaching in public schools and i'm only at this point only like four or five years out of public schools and i'm like oh like these people are like doing acid on the weekends and they're like going to strip clubs and having anal sex and it's just like that's like who was also teaching me in high school and it's just like i did not remotely have that interpretation of the people that i knew from back then because it was like impossible to view them outside of the context of Mm -hmm. like the 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 power structure that we'd created for them yeah i think that's partly why in all these things like in i think it's in highway patrol like his dad gets like killed yeah really early and then at the end he comes back because like oh like you know he's impervious to, like, and he, he is chris ends up being the person that's going to kill him right and i think patrol, so. right yeah. which is again that's a that's an edible thing where yeah. it's like he's he's he has to kill his father to to become a man I don't know that there's really connections that can be drawn between stories. No. I guess this comes back yeah, to what we were saying right. before. It's like, if thematic. it's a collection of short stories, or if it's a novel, or if it's neither, or if it, if it matters, the structure, for the most part, is the same. 
Like yeah. he's talking about a TV show, which also seems weird that if he's like doing all this for different publications, uh, he's like, hey, I'm doing that thing again. It's like, well, why? <laughs> it's such a weird framing context. But maybe he had this in mind. Maybe, you know, whatever. I don't know. Yeah. What's also interesting, and I don't know why this is, and I don't know if there's a connection to the shows, but each is written so very differently. Right. Like there is one that's just like 38 paragraphs numbered. And I don't know what the point is here. Or like there was the one Bonanza, the intro. It's like bum, butter, bum, yeah, bum, yeah, bum, yeah. Like it just has that. And then like it's just it's styled in a way that like House of Leaves is styled. Yeah, an illustrative quality to the text. For no seemingly no seeming reason. And then Maverick sentences like almost out of breath, where it's like dot dot dot, and then a yeah. word, and then dot dot dot. And like what what is that? Why? Why is that? Um you're asking me why why he do they stylistically changes from episode yes. to episode? Um a, hmm. It might just be him like, I want to try something new. But it feels like it's there maybe for a reason, but maybe it's not. Well, some of them are, for example, the, oh, God, is it Paladin? The the, the one that's the numbered. Paladin is the one that is... It is Paladin that's numbered. Proeresis. It's 3 a.m. and Paladin is just returning. Yes. There is a, a significant part of that where he's, he, he, like, folds in on himself and starts self-criticizing, like, who am I, an academic that's talking about Paladin using, using words these words, like, yes. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and talking about the ways in which he's, like, pretentious uh, and, and how he doesn't really have a right to comment on these shows from so far away from them and their relationship to American public and stuff like that. Yeah. Because it's like criticizing the show is like criticizing his father, which he can't really – I mean he can do and he is doing, but you still feel the guilt of criticizing your father because your father, again, is the model for who you believe that you're going to become, et cetera, et cetera. When like in reverse, it feels kind of like – I think what I heard, and I don't know if this is what you were saying or not, but like – People can be like, "Why are you making fun of Bonanza?" It's like, "Well, I'm not really making fun of Bonanza. I'm making fun of my dad." He, he is kind of making fun. I know, of Bonanza, but like, but, but, right? I know, but it's the same kind of thing. It's like that. It's like the inverse. It's like you yeah. know, like know. A, a, a lot of these, a lot of the messages for each of these stories is like, "What kind of hick watches this television show yeah. that is made for morons?" Like, it's very much like this is. I, I know that like Curtis White is from Chicago and shit, but like this is like a like very much like a coastal elite. Uh, yeah. pedestal kind of kind of looking down on the common man kind of book. Well, that's why, like, the podcast Bananas for Bonanza is so weird because, like, Andy Daly and Matt Gorley and Marie Bamford's characters are, like, fervent zealots for the show, but all three of them would probably never watch an episode of the show in their life because, like, it's the same... It's, like, 52 minutes of, like, the same thing happening every time. And, like, there's a new woman that shows up and she gets killed by the end of the episode. And, like, it just... Yeah, it's also... Bonanza, if if I if I remember correctly, is like a fairly racist show, right? Oh yeah, like there's Pop a, singing stuff, yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, and like it's also sixty five years old or whatever, right? right. So like it's, yeah, it's yeah. just it's I I was trying I wanted to watch along, so I'm like because you know bad movie mm. podcast or whatever, and like I watch a movie and then I listen to the podcast and I I, I got like ten minutes in the first episode, and I was just like oh I can't do this because Bonanza there's also like hundred and seventy episodes of Bonanza four hundred and thirty one yeah that's too many but like. They were doing one every two weeks or whatever. I'm like, that's not a lot, but like, it's just, it's not modern in any way. Like, it's so slow. Yeah. Not slow in a way that like Mad Men is like contemplative. It's just like, no, there's just not a lot. There's not a lot going on. They're just like, we're feeling 52 minutes. Because they were just figuring out how to make television back then. Mm hmm. Yeah. So in the book, there's two huge chunks there's gloom and there's glee. Yeah. But it's all gloom. Like, there's no there's no uplifting parts to this, I don't think. Do you think that, do you see... Uh, the, third, you s- the third man stuff is kind of uplifting. Or at least, it, like, if, if you don't interpret it in the cynical way that we have, where it's, like, kind of a fantasy of, of imagining your father sure. including you. But before we get there, 
There's Sea Hunt, where his dad is scuba diving. He's just, like, living underwater while the mom's at the hospital. Which is very clearly, living underwater is very clearly a metaphor for watching TV, right? right. Or just where, not being absent. Or just being yeah, absent. Where yeah. you're just, like, completely distant from your family, not able to communicate even if you wanted to. And the dad transforming into a creature from the Black Lagoon. Mm-hmm. And just, again, like, not being there, being monstrous or whatever, probably. And a fish that causes hallucinations. Like, I just, I have, I have sporadic notes that I took. And I'm just like, I don't know what this means. Like, it just, it's, I think that's the one that's the most surreal, but also probably the one that maybe is the most literal. Yeah, I think, I, I don't know. Like, I, I find Curtis White to be, uh, his writing really makes me uncomfortable. Yeah, can we, let's, let's talk about Requiem for a little bit. Because okay. Requiem has maybe like eight or ten different stories that he intercuts between. Mm-hmm. And then some one-off stuff. But like... There's a chunk in that that I was like, I was thinking about this book, and I'm like, because I, I remember, I was I brought it over to my parents' house because I was reading it. My mom's like, oh, what's this? And I'm like, oh, it's this book. And I'm like, maybe I'll have her read it. And then, like, almost no. literally yeah, the next no, chapter no, no. is the beginning of, like, a four or five chapter through line. Of bestiality. Yeah. A woman yeah. is, like, has, has, like, a, a niche, like, a fetish porn site where she's having sex with a dog. I'm like, oh, no, I could never recommend this to my mom. Right. Or most people, honestly. I don't want to say if it's honest, but it's like it's inventive and unique in a way that I, I don't think many other authors are even trying to be. Like he's just doing his thing. As such, it's not for most people. If you're able to get by the fact that like he's writing about a woman having sex with a dog or whatever, this is not being done. Like this is something that is because it's kind of it's it's like about like what it means to live in a society where some women have sex with dogs, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> like what is like what's that about? Why have and 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 to live in a, to live somewhere that has provided an avenue for that to be a way to make money and what kind of world makes money such a priority that some people are driven toward things like that and 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 what does that what does that do to the person because she's so blasé about it all yeah that's right so have you read other books by him or just the these two? well he no i actually taught a book by him a couple of semesters ago uh but he his he's largely a nonfiction writer now okay um he's written a book called middle mind uh why americans refuse to think for themselves is he still active is he still writing oh yeah yeah uh he most most recently wrote a book called um we Robots, which is about AI. Is that the sequel uh, to the Will Smith movie? Rising to, uh, I'm ignoring that. Um, rising to Power. Uh, he wrote a book called um, The Science Delusion, which is about like why turning to science for all our answers and away from religion is kind of a, a, a faulty idea. So I would imagine that, you've, that Requiem is, you would say, his best book, because that's your favorite of his, and one of your favorite books. Yeah, that book, like, I read that book when I was a freshman in college, and it, like, rewired my brain. It, it totally, yeah, it, it totally, like, made me rethink. It, it was maybe my first real introduction to experimental fiction. And exper- experimental fiction is a weird, um, a weird phrase, because it implies that the person is, does not know what the result is going to be. So I don't, I don't really like it. Like, they're not, like, Curtis White is not experimenting on us. He is very precise. He knows the emotional yeah. reaction that we're going to have. He knows what he's doing um so it's more like uh i don't it's know like, it's alternative it's not yeah, experimental al- okay alternative yeah, yeah that, that, that's a, that's a good way to put it yeah that's a that's a fantastic book and that's also dulkey archive press um he's a he was uh one of the founders of the fiction collective too which was a really um seminal uh again experimental fiction collective uh in the 80s uh that that included some people like mark liner uh nick mosley are any of his books, like, has he reached, 
Because like I don't have any concept for any of these authors that we talk about. Mm-hmm. I don't know if they're the most popular. Like I know, like obviously like Stephen King, but there's like certain people. Like I know that Murakami, who we're going to get to later this season, is like big. But I also don't know the scale of his. But like, is is he someone who has reached acclaim, or is it just like in small circles? Because again, like I read a lot now, thanks to you. Yeah, thanks a lot. <laughs> but I don't have any sense of like compared to like the directors, for instance. Yeah, like I can tell but- if a director is like. Uh, a guy that everybody loves or just like oh i just found this movie somehow or whatever so like where does he like is he someone who has found immense success like is rec like what no. is his biggest book? I, I i don't i don't I, uh, certainly not as a fiction writer i don't i don't think he's found all that much. well success is is a weird yeah um he doesn't have name recognition i i um i think his non-fiction is pretty popular okay but his fiction is something that not that many people are familiar with. Because what's what's interesting also about the uh, as we delineate fiction from nonfiction is that these two things that I've read of his, both fiction, are also largely nonfiction. Like there's a lot of like analytical, just like straight up like research in Requiem and using real people as characters. Like in in Requiem, Terry Gross is a character, yeah. right? And then in this, he's talking about TV shows that exist, and he's like fictionalizing that, but he's using right. reality or not that it's reality, but like a thing that we like a con- he's not completely rebuilding the contract of things he's like here's bonanza you know bonanza i'm gonna do something weird within bonanza yeah and so he's taking things that exist and like fictionalizing that but i think that there's i don't think it's surprising i guess that he jumped to nonfiction because it feels like he always sort of had one foot in that world anyway yeah he's like definitely a research-based smart person but it's, it's like you know like andy warhol or something right like he's he's taking things that everyone knows from pop culture and and uh reinterpreting reimagining them and presenting them in a different way yeah there's a couple things in the glee section in the back half in sea hunt no no not not sea hunt in have them will travel in manic maverick that get very sexual mm-hmm. not out of nowhere because again these are like not really connected do you want to read it out loud in kind of a breathy voice that will maybe um make the listeners uncomfortable i've read fan fiction on other podcasts so if you want to find uh zach efron fan fiction i've read aloud uh but, like, Half Gun Will Travel is just, like, about a young couple who, like, can't keep their hands off each other. Yeah. And that, that's what the story's about. And then in Manic Maverick, it starts out with, like, a young boy and a young girl separately, like, brother and sister, I think, that just, like, can't stop masturbating. Mm-hmm. Confusing sexual politics of, like, maybe drinking a sister's milk. But that's also, like, we talked about before, I think you mentioned before, Maverick is also the weirdest of these stories. Yeah. Because I think it's framed within a world where the dad's watching a TV that's, like, going on, it's on the fritz and so yeah, like everything's blue yeah. and so it just gets weird from the jump i think i i mentioned before before uh, we started recording but i i retained very little from the maverick section i think some something about the writing style uh just like you know the it just rolled off of me i didn't i couldn't keep that stuff in my brain for some reason even though his father is playing a bridge a literal bridge mm-hmm. in, in another story that's still like a normal thing yeah. like that's just like it's war or whatever just his dad is a bridge and then here, it's just like nothing about this makes sense. It's got something to do with the TV being on the fritz, but it's also like we're moving further into an interpretive uh, version of reality. Like a, it's almost a dreamlike state, like the, the trance-like quality of sitting in front of a television for a very long time and yeah. dozing off and waking up and your dreams intermixing with the content. Because there's other things, like other things get weird. Like at the end of the one, what was the TV show where it's Paladin, where it's the numbered? Is that Have Gun Will Travel or which one yeah, is that? Have Gun Will Travel, yeah. Because at the end... I took a couple of pictures because this is the only book in the season that's not available digitally. This You have to buy the physical book. It's old mm. school. Old school. I like the digital thing because I can read it anywhere. Like if I have my phone, if I'm out somewhere, I can just pull it up. Or if I'm on my computer, I can bring it up whatever. So like antiquated. What I'm saying is get with the times, Curtis White. But anyway, here's, <laughs> here's 
Here's a screenshot I took. I don't think it's up to him. I know. But here's a screenshot I took, but my screenshot of me, I just took a picture of a book. The riddle of Sarge is undone when to, this is how the thing ends. To the astonishment of all, especially my father, who pops up from his suburban recliner in awe, Sarge removes his helmet. Under his dirty, dented GI helmet with the chin straps hanging down most sloppily is not familiar blonde hair, but a small patch of garden, mostly grasses and bright wildflowers. Yeah. This grows out of the top of his head. The bright colors of the wildflowers make it appear that his brow is aflame. How do I do it? This is a quote. How do I do it? I took my bayonet and prepared the topsoil, and then I sowed the seed. No, it didn't hurt too much. I didn't go very deep. Why? Don't you like it? Don't you think it's a nice idea to have a little garden on top of your head? And so there's <laughs> there's like a, you know, a 15-page long short story about yeah. just war, essentially, right? Or whatever it's about. And then it ends with the guy who has flowers for hair. Yeah. And it's like, wait, hold on. What? I'm sorry. What? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, 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 I don't. I can't interpret that, um, except for maybe it's about absurdity and the absurdity of not only war, but cataloging war and turning it into entertainment for television and watching it and then allowing it to influence our personalities, um, planting the seeds in, in our in our head uh, for, you know, ideas for future generations and stuff like that. But that yeah. might be way off. On the flip side of that, like the grounded reality of the third man, the Saturday night of the movie is how this ends. Mm-hmm. We're talking about how it's like the idyllic version of this all, right? And we're reading it kind of cynically. Yeah. But there's a thing, like, in the beginning, before they start watching The Third Man, there's a back and forth. Curtis or Chris asks his father, are you happy? And he says, yeah. I'm a, uh, yes, I'm a very happy person. He says, you are? Of course. How do you know? I'm happy just because I am. I have your mother, yeah, and I have all... your kids, and I have Poochie in the house, and nice things like the TV. Yeah, it's all tautology, right? I, I, I like TV because I like TV. I drink, yeah. I, I drink because I like to drink. Why do you watch TV every night? I like the TV, son. I enjoy it. It's very entertaining. You watch TV because it's entertaining? That's right. Oh. Which is counter to Curtis White as a uh, modern academician where he's just like everything is subject to pages and pages of interpretation and there are deep psychological and philosophical reasons behind Mm -hmm. each action. But really like something is just – some things are just tautological, right? It is what it is. Yeah. There's no necessary – Freudian or Hegelian or whatever kind of interpretation. It's just the dude likes watching TV because he likes watching TV. Even though on this podcast network, I've probably talked about close to a thousand movies, right? And I've just dissected them, many of them too in depth, right? Mm-hmm. Just like, no, like movies aren't made to do this with everything, right? Like some of them are. Some they of them rarely aren't. hold up. Right. But then there's other movies, like there's a joke in our fantasy baseball text thread about how much I love spring breakers and people mm-hmm. like defend it. I'm like, well, I can't really like I can, but like you won't listen to it. But like, I just like it because I like it. Like there's certain things where just like, if you're not gonna listen to me, like I just, I, I, I can try to explain it, but there's the movies. I'm just like, I, I don't know why. It's just like a feeling that I get when I watch a thing or I read a thing or whatever. I just like it. Spring breakers specifically. I have people have asked me to defend that movie and I have gone hyper academic on them being like, well, you got to understand that Vanessa Hudgens and, uh, Ashley Tisdale, mm, Ashley Benson, Ashley Benson are like represent the id, right? And Rachel Corinne represents the ego, and then um, Selena Gomez, Selena Gomez, super ego, super ego, yeah. and like very clearly this is like you can lay, I, I like laid all that out, but like when once you start doing that people roll their eyes because they yeah. actually don't give a shit about right. that stuff. They, they, like they want something to make sense, but they want it to make sense without it having to require. Without having to think about it. They want it to make sense in so far as plot is concerned. 
What I also like about that one, I don't want to turn this Spring Breakers podcast, although I will if you do. That is a very specific thing that I, I'm sure also probably happens in books and mm-hmm. may, might also be happening within how he's talking about these TV shows. Is that like Spring, there's only, there's very few that these applies to, but I think Spring Breakers, Fight Club, and maybe Josie and the Pussycats all ex- <laughs> the holy trinity of all movies. explicitly dunk on their target audience. Sure. Okay. Which is fascinating. Like yeah, yeah. Fight Club is like, hey, muscular college bro dudes, come mm-hmm. here. And it's like, actually, you're all gay because you want to have sex with Brad Pitt. It's like, oh, I don't want to think about that. <laughs> or like Spring Breakers, like, hey, party people, come here. It's like, wait, this is not what I signed up for. Or like Josie and the Pussycats is like about, you know, the subversion of like pop culture and fiscalization or whatever of pop yeah, music. Yeah, the entertainment industrial yes. complex. Yeah. And so I think that there's something fascinating about that too. But I think that's also accidentally, I made a point about this too. It's like, Bonanza, Bonanza, is like, hey, look at this masculine whatever. And then like you were saying before, it's like the, well, actually, there's deeper stuff going on here that's like really kind of iffy. And like, I think he's doing that like his dad is not a masculine ideal, but... Because he's hyper sedentary. He's the, he, he, but, but like, he might not be the masculine ideal, but he is like, if you in your brain were conjuring up the dad from, from multiple eras, the dad, like my dad, or Mm -hmm. possibly your dad, I don't, I don't know. Like, the image that I conjure up is, like, a dude in a recliner, like, smoking cigarettes. Yeah. And just dirty. And, like, it smells. And, like, it's not bad. It's just, <laughs> yeah. like... It's just no, like, it's bad. It is bad. Um, I, I, I have no problem taking my dad to task on these things because he can't get at me because he's dead. Ha ha. And I think that's something that when we do the casting, we're not going to do the casting because it's, like, I think to a certain extent, it's hard to cast because his dad is somebody different or a bridge in these different things. And I think also maybe, and maybe not, and I, I don't know that I really felt like this, but I think to a certain extent, or maybe you could read it like picturing your dad as the dad. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's hard to cast a thing because like it's willfully shifting. It's also the pop culture references of this book are so specifically boomer pop culture yes. references that they don't make sense anymore. Right? If you were to make this movie, it would be... You wouldn't use these. These You would probably use what we're going to do instead where we talk about like what shows. Yeah. I do want to say, though, I think Charlie Kaufman can make this into a movie, and I think maybe Guy Madden could make this into a movie, and that's it. Guy Madden would make it almost as a documentary uh, with lots of voiceover and stuff like that, and Charlie Kaufman would do his normal Charlie Kaufman thing of, right. of you know layering things a million times on top of one another. Right. Do you want to call Matt? Yeah. So we're going to call our friend Matt. Uh, I think we might have teased this before. So our friend Matt's a graphic designer. And we're going to hopefully have a segment every episode where we call him and we send him a picture of, of the, the cover art and he breaks it down. He has no idea what we're calling him. <laughs> I mean, he knows about the segment. Wait, wait, theme song. just texting about fancy baseball so it might be a good time the drama yo hey matt you're on the air with how to win the lottery <laughs> hey how to win the lottery uh is now a good time to do a cover art breakdown yeah yeah i'm at a party <laughs> <laughs> all right i'm going to text you a picture of this cover and I want you to give your well while it comes through. <laughs> sounds like a rockin' party. Yeah, well, that's a baby. You hear. <laughs> do you want to give your credentials, or no. do you want to just like be a mystery? 
Um, yeah, no, I have no credentials. Cool. All right, we just texted you a picture. Hey, he's all right. All right, hold on, let me check. The How to Win Lottery podcast, live call-in. You're on a podcast, you're on a podcast call-in? Yeah, I'm doing, a, uh, art, I'm doing an analysis of this book cover. This is live? Uh-huh. I'm raising my father watching TV a novel by Curtis White. Literally smart. Like your thoughts on the design? All right. Bye-bye. All right, I got it. So what do you think? Hold on, let me, let, let me, let me try to put it on speaker while I, I can look and uh, look and talk at the same time. Uh, yeah, I mean, it captures a nostalgic uh, energy. Not yeah. only with the picture, but just the uh, the browns, tans, straightforward typography. I mean, I, I don't particularly love it, but if it's good enough for David Foster Wallace, I mean, it's good enough for me. <laughs> I'm not crazy about it either, actually, to be honest. Bob, can you give Matt like a 60 second, like what this is about, and then maybe he could design? Do you want to try to design what, a new one or like how oh, you would man. change it? This is also a weird ass book, Matt. So like, it's hard to describe well, in sixty seconds. It's just based off of the off of the title alone. Like, there's almost a. Uh, when was this book written? Nineteen ninety eight. Hmm. So you're in kind of a gray area, graphic design wise, where this probably was meant to be something close to the cutting edge. But definitely, yeah. I mean, it's definitely trying to be like the grandfather of a, of book cover design styles, putting that kite type on a curve like that relatively novel at the time early computer graphics maybe not early in 98 but still like everyone could could execute that sort of thing using illustrator and type on a path and things like that so it probably felt a little more fresh in 1998 while still definitely trying to be retro so now you're in sort of this gray area where you know what the fuck it's supposed to be and it just kind of reads as a little bit boring but uh, you know i could call it a yeoman like book cover so the book's about uh, 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 th- this guy is like reinterpreting his relationship with his father through the television shows that his father watched while ignoring him. So each chapter is like a different episode of television, like Bonanza or uh, Combat or, you know, Sea Hunt or something like that. Yeah. I mean, like, you don't really get a whole lot of emotion from this design, but uh, I guess that you know, that kind of those, those rays in the middle look like, what do they call them? Like a station break screen when the channel would like, Oh yeah, sure. Yeah. Do you think we should call the segment judge a book by its cover? (laughs) It's pretty good. Yeah, you can do that. (laughs) Matt's less enthusiastic. But then then I'd like you to refer to me as judge Matt or that's fine. And just pretend that I'm an actual judge. (laughs) Okay. Whatever you say, your honor. <laughs> so the last question for you, Matt. If you saw this book on a shelf, would you pick it up and read it, or would you keep moving? See, I mean, this is an interesting thing because that's why I use a pull quote. Like by far, the, the David Foster Wallace quote is is what would get me to, to leaf through it more so than the design. But design is nothing more than communication, so it, the words matter just as much as the the images. So yeah, I pick it up and look at it. Not having anything to do with that brown and tan circle on the front. <laughs> you, you got you got to put a TV on the cover though, right? A book like this. I mean, like you know, you could you could go where like you're focusing on maybe like the back of Dad's head and the glow of the TV. Like when you think about somebody zoning out and watching television, you just think of it as this like ominous 
blue orb of like of light that's hypnotizing somebody this is using like an old timey tv to, to position it in a in in yesteryear and it just seems it's more like you're working with an icon so it, i don't know i i'd like a little more personalized emotion in the in the execution of this particular design thanks again to matt we had a technical difficulty on my end that end of the call a little bit early actually it wasn't the phone it was the recording thing but matt thank you to matt outro music <laughs> Successful first epi- first first episode of the the segment. Oh uh, yeah, for sure, for sure. Hopefully, we can always catch him at, at a party. Or he's always doing things. He's got a very fulfilling, wonderful life. Yeah, and that we are unlike moi. His wife came up just like, "What do you do?" <laughs> Shout out Lisa. Anyway, any, any other thoughts about this? Or do you want to, instead of the fantasy casting game, you want to play our other game? Yeah, let's do the other game. If it's a game, I don't know if it's a game. I don't know if it's a game. I think it's just talking about TV shows that our dads like. Yeah, what do you got? Miami Vice, for sure. Okay. Some kind of Superman, whether it would be like Lois and Clark, because that was... So here's here's what I was trying to figure out, because you, you had the idea for the game. You're like, let's just do like what TV shows you put your dad in. If, no, if if this were you, if right. you were Curtis, like what TV shows did your dad ignore you in favor of? Which I don't think... I don't know that he did. Right. Because you asked that when I was like 30 pages into the book. I'm like, let me figure out what he's doing. And like... I never figured out what he was doing, really. Yeah, fair. So I think it's just like TV shows that he likes. And I was trying to think of like who I would cast him as, but then like he's like cast him as Ridge and Fingers and stuff, right? So like it doesn't really. But I think Miami Vice probably. Like my dad is older, and so now like lately he's been watching a lot of like there's like that channel Me TV where it's like all the old like Bonanza and stuff like and Gunsmoke things that he grew up watching, but weren't on when I was growing up. So it's this weird, like, it's not his favorite shows, it's just his favorite shows of my childhood or whatever. Yeah, It's a weird, because I think it also, what we were talking about before, there's too much stuff, kind of. Right, there's too much stuff. There's not, like, um, uh, we don't all have a collective um, right. consciousness anymore. So what about you? Um, what TV shows did your dad I, I, I thought about before? it for my dad, and then I thought about it also for Jerry, who's not my dad, but who is uh, my uncle, who lives with me currently. Because he watches TV comp because he's not mobile, really. So he's just, like, watching TV If all you the wrote time. one, you would, there would be a chapter about a Dodgers game, right? Like, he would be, yes. like, yeah, yeah, yeah. on the field yeah. for the Dodgers. It would, be, it would be the Dodgers. It would be Columbo. It would be MacGyver, Blue Bloods, that Tom Selleck show. Sure. And it would be uh, the, the three-hour block of shows about, um, like, Chicago infrastructure. So it's, like, the Chicago— Oh, Fire, fire Med and PD or yeah, whatever. Yeah, 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 which is an insane three hours of television that I have to watch every Wednesday with him. Uh, right on. Um, but for my dad, it's like, it's, it, it's, it's weirder. Cause you know, I was a kid then. So it like notoriously, my dad did not want us watching the Simpsons. Yeah. Neither did my parents. Um, my dad wanted to watch the Simpsons. Oh. And because we lived in a house that was only three, only had three rooms and right. only one television because my dad wanted to watch the Simpsons. We all ended up watching the Simpsons. So it would probably be like the Simpsons married with children it would be like that early Fox block mm-hmm. of, of shows. Um, when I watched The Sopranos for the first time a couple of years ago, like I understood my dad better because he's an Italian dude who like, like my dad is not Tony Soprano, but I was just like, oh, I understand like kind of where he's coming from in certain ways. And I feel like maybe you could do one of those. Well, The Sopranos, we should have talked about The Sopranos earlier because The Sopranos is like 100% um, a television show that moved us away from 
shows that we interpret into shows that interpret themselves because the Sopranos was like heavy on Freud, right? It's like that, Mm -hmm. that entire show is about psychoanalysis and masculinity and the ways in which like the symbolic gestures in the real world affect Tony's uh, psychological landscape. Right. That's a, that's a real transition point. And that's what 1998 and 99 around the exact same time that this book came out. So like that's, it's like, you know, as thunderclap Newman once said, there's something in the air. And I think also we were talking before about, you you just brought up mad men because it's one of those, but like, that's the first of like the difficult men, right? Like there's the Alan Sabawal book, difficult men about, which I think I've probably referenced on here before, which is a book I've not read, but I, will read at some point but it's the same thing like the flawed the anti-hero well it's also M- mad men is is a uh direct lineage yeah. uh, from yeah uh, sopranos because mm-hmm. uh matthew weiner was a was a writer on the sopranos. Mm-hmm. anything else you want to talk about this book or should we open the mailbag i wanted to just say that this it, it, it's like you know we didn't talk enough about the nuclear family and the ways in which this book is like a direct commentary on how the the uh the nuclear family functioned we're detached from the earlier conversation so maybe I, I would have to go panning through my brain to find connective tissue well this is actually a that. great segue that there is now so we have a patreon and since we recorded the last episode but this is also now like a month ago when this happened because we're recording this in the past because we're still preparing for ducks newberry port because we're time travelers we overhauled revamped the patreon there are now eight tiers Lots of crazy things available there. But there's also now, in the off weeks, a rant from Bob, where you just talking about the thing. So maybe you think about that and you, you rant about the nuclear family in your in your off week. Yeah, it's going to be about 25 minutes um, of me uh, saying uh, curse words, talking about my favorite pies. No, it's, it'll mostly be about contemporary literature. Same thing. Just what I'm reading. Because I read a lot, and, and, and in between these two-week breaks... Uh, uh, you know, it's just a place to put my uh, put my thoughts and then make you pay for them. Yeah. So patreon.com slash lottery pod. Also, shout out to Desiree, our friend Desiree, who supports us over there now. $5 a month. Thank you so much. I'm only saying that because our Patreon right now has one, one patron, $5. Don't, so yeah, well, don't neg us like publicly like that. It's it's like we, we want to... Um, well, I mean, there's a $10,000 a month tier if you want to do the $10,000 Right now, tier. It's, it's an exclusive club and Desiree's getting all the good content for herself. And if you uh, want in on that club, it's a, you know, a low, low price of 500 pennies a month. She is because as long as it's only her, the, the chance that you talk about architecture is going to go up dramatically. Yeah, get in on the bottom floor. That way you can influence uh, what I what I want to what I'm going to talk about. Yeah. We also have an email address, lottery at cageclub.me or lottery pod. Either one. They both work at cageclub.me. And we have another email from your friend, Egg. Meg's reaction to memories of my father watching TV. And this comes with multimedia. She sends some attachments as well. I haven't really talked to her about this book that much, so I don't know what... what... Well, we thought there was a rumor that she wasn't going to be able to find it, and she found it. So now now here we go. That's right. So I like the concept of this book more than I like the act of actually reading it, which I think is a very fair statement. I feel like I had, if I had watched slash grown up with these shows, I'd have a deeper connection with it. As it is, since these shows are no longer in the collective consciousness, a layer of meaning is lost. Yeah, totally. However... The part that really resonated with me is when the narrator becomes very self-aware and interrupts himself talking about his, quote, intellectual performance, because that's also a factor in my relationship with my own father. But instead of it being something to distance me from my father, why is Meg not doing this podcast with you? Why am I here? <laughs> Come on down, Meg. Replace Joey. But instead of it being something to distance me from my father, I see it as a way to come closer to the thing. I feel like I can't enjoy a thing without knowing the thing. 
if it feels like I'm missing the joke or the reference, I don't enjoy it as much. My dad teased me when I walk when I would talk at length about a TV show or movie I just watched. I've included screenshots of this phenomenon. Screenshots of, like uh, like of her texting with her dad. Yes. So <laughs> she texts her dad. So are they so making funny. fun of George Steinbrenner specifically, or just idiot bosses in general? I'm guessing this is about Seinfeld, probably. Hey, you're the Seinfeld expert. Not I'm not Meg. there yet, though. He says I'd say George Meg. Was he an airhead? Dad, no, but he would do anything to win and would make rash decisions. Meg, I'm thinking part of it is general bosses because when George walks out in the middle of George Steinbrenner's ramblings, Seinfeld, that's how I feel when my boss talks to me about stories that have nothing to do with work, crying laughing emojis. <laughs> Dad, I think you are overanalyzing, oh, I forgot that's what you do. Meg, Aww. I'm just relating to Seinfeld. Is that so wrong? Dad, very. Meg, this picture. Sure. You're not supposed to relate to Seinfeld. And then dad thinking face emoji. No, I think you are. Okay. Because it's the show about nothing. No, but the characters on that show are supposed to be, well, maybe you relate to them. You relate to like your most selfish, worst parts of yourself, right? I saw a thing on Reddit that was like, Kramer is the most realistic TV character I've ever seen. Because if you ever know a Kramer, you know that that's exactly what Kramer is. And I was like, well, that seems like a very hyper-specific, like, if you know a guy like that, he's a realistic I've, guy. I've been, I, I, by that, the group of which, my friend group that uh, Meg is included in has um, referred to me as, like, the Kramer of that group, which I don't really see, except for that we both have wild hair. There is a podcast that we are both fans of and hosted by women that we're fans of, Lecture Hall with Dylan and Brody. Dylan's been tweeting a lot about Kramer. She, she tweeted a thing about Kramer recently, and this is I mean, this is my last thing I'm going to say about Seinfeld. It's weird to see somebody that, like, independently, like, she doesn't know I exist, and so, like, she's not talking at me about <laughs> Seinfeld, but weird. it's still whatever. But she said, there has to be a nice way to ask Kramer to stop with the door. Someone's going to get hurt. <laughs> and then she said, George and Jerry's girlfriends are always the hottest women I've ever seen in my entire life. Maybe one of them could say something. And, like, yeah, good point, Dylan. Let's get back to what Meg was talking about. Hey, man, she went down the Seinfeld rabbit hole. <laughs> That being said, the number one show I would put on my put my father in the backdrop of is Seinfeld. Oh, all right. See, my rambling, incoherent yeah. side tangent is correct. He loves that show so much, it's probably coded into his DNA at this point. I grew up watching it because he would always have it on the background whenever it was on, on any channels. I feel like almost any interaction that Jerry has with his father could also be something that happened between me and my father. See, I have the exact opposite experience. The reason why I'm so lukewarm on Seinfeld is I did not grow up with it at all because it was never on in my house, partially because my dad was an anti-Semite. So, so like that, like it's like so like distant from me because I didn't grow up with it. But you're, you're reliving, like you didn't grow up with the Simpsons and you're watching the Simpsons right now and you are loving it. So maybe I should, maybe I should give Seinfeld another try. Seinfeld, I'm also loving that. I mean, it takes a couple seasons to get into it as they figured out. Like, Simpsons is funnier, faster, but Seinfeld, yeah. that's great. I think it still holds up. Because, like, there's certain things where it's like, oh, no, if they had cell phones, it'd be, it's fine, right? Like, it solves. But, like, so much of that is still relatable or just, like, goofy. So, Do you, going back to Meg's email, do you feel similarly in that if you don't understand a reference to something, you have to, like, figure it out? You have to dig in? Or can you let it just go over your head and enjoy the other parts of some of the thing? generally i would agree i think here i i don't know the shows we talked about like i don't really know the shows i've seen none of the episodes like i've seen zero episodes of any of these shows in their entirety in an ideal world i watch a bunch of the show like it i think what meg said is true of me too that if these were shows that i knew or there's like one show in here that like i knew like that my dad loved and i grew up watching or whatever i would probably like that more but i also don't know that it matters because it's not really bonanza it's just like characters from bonanza in like an insane world or something yeah but i think maybe if this if like seinfeld were one of these 
and you were able to picture oh yeah jerry and elaine doing the things that mm-hmm. are the, like the grotesque out of character actions that, that sure. he's he's enacting upon these characters it would hit you uh a little a little differently right yeah so like for for me if it, maybe like for my age group which is 30 geriatric millennials as defined by the new york times uh-huh. it would be something like married with children seinfeld the simpsons and then and then maybe um friends and uh what was another huge stick on back then mad about you or something like that the difficulty that i'm having in like defining and describing books that like are, are shows that my dad would be a part of in my version of this is because like my parents were both very careful about what we watched and so what we wound up watching was often like as a family was just like things they approved but we would all watch together so like but, like i'm not gonna put my dad in like boy meets world <laughs> right yeah although it could you know or seventh heaven or american idol or whatever you know like just like weird stuff like he's a judge in american idol that would that would be a good segment kind of maybe right i don't know <laughs> i will say that for the last like maybe five years of his life my dad like obsessively watched mash and the andy griffith show oh okay like on a, like always yeah and i think now now that my dad is retired and has more time he'll watch like you know the rifleman or whatever like things that he grew up watching well the rifleman is that's like one of these shows i know but i don't but that that wasn't on when i was growing up yeah you have no now it it was like a show that your dad grew up with yes yeah correct but thank you egg for writing in always a pleasure if you want to replace me on the show you are welcome (laughs) come on down lottery or call in one day we can just call in you can call in if you want a segment we can have you have a segment too we we got uh judge a book by its cover with the honorable Judge Matt Early, and then, you know, whatever whatever egg you want it to be. We can just, uh, how to cook an egg with egg. Cooking segment. These episodes are now like four hours long, and they're just like completely yeah, unrelated They're just, just going to get longer and longer and longer. All right, Meg, here's the cover of the book. Design a recipe that's around eggs based on this cover. Don't do that. No, don't do that. Next week, next episode, a book that you've called The Best oh, Book a, of the 80s. It's a big one. Yeah, oh, I, I feel bad because in a conversation with Matt, Matt said that I had previously referred to Bonfire of the Vanities as the best book of the 80s. And I'm guilty. That's guilty. I, I have said that. But I have traditionally referred to four different books as the best Wait, there's books there's the four the now because you told me three. Well, three really. And then so, so I, I, I've always said Beloved by Toni Morrison. Yep. Prayer for Owen Meany. Which is the one that we're doing John next Irving, time. Yep. Uh, Bonfire of the Vanities by Tom Wolfe. And uh, occasionally, less than zero by Brad Easton Ellis. Oh, okay. Because that's like a stylistic, you know, that's a different kind of book than those other books. Uh, uh, I, I was not being disingenuous when I said that Bonfire of the Vanities was the best book of the eighties. It's just that I'm fickle and I go, I, I flutter between sure. these, these three or four books. So we go from our shortest book of the season to our longest so far book of the season, from 158 pages of this one to like 630 something. Yeah, it's a it's an easy six thirty though I'd say. Okay. Also, it's one of those books that once you get into the groove of it, you're not going to want to really stop. Like this book is 150 pages, but it's hard 150. Pages. This is difficult. It take it took me longer to read this book than it took me to read You Shall Not Velocity. Yeah. Um, which is like 400 pages. Yeah. Uh, and then I also with this book, like I said, I barely retained anything from the Maverick section. Well, I think because it's so weird, and we've talked about that. We don't need to, we don't need to rehash it, but like I think it's intentionally obtuse. Yeah, for sure. If you want to listen to A Prayer for Omen Meaning, go to cageclub.me slash lottery, click on the Audible banner, and give us some kind of kickback. I don't know if Amazon's ever going to tell us if we get it. I would assume that they're going to like ask for my bank account information, but they don't have it right now. So if we have money in there, I don't have it yet. Uh, yeah, beats, uh, beats me all to hell. Patreon.com slash lottery pod, lottery at cageclub.me. Until next time. 
keep reading. No, stop it. God damn it. Uh, today's today's uh, t- t- um, uh, uh, today's crime is um, didn't think of one before. Oh before, no! So I'm 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 caught. This crime is improvisation. Uh, t- t- today's today's crime is elder abuse. Making your way in the world today takes everything you've got. Taking a break from all your worries sure would help a lot. Wouldn't you like to get away?